Hello and welcome to Battlecast, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, and today I'm going to finish telling you the epic story of the First Crusade. And if I sound funny, it's because my boss left his shoe embedded in the seat of my pants, but that's alright. I'm feeling a lot better this month than last month. Last month, my kids brought home the inevitable bug, and I was really under the weather. But you know me, I keep the show going come hell or high water, so thanks for putting up with me when I was sick. I should tell you that this is part two in a two-part series, so you can start on the previous episode if you want to hear the whole story, and if not... That's fine, too. On today's show, we're going to take the Crusaders all the way from Antioch on the top of the Mediterranean coast above modern-day Lebanon to modern-day Jerusalem. It's a battle the whole way, but it's not just a battle. It's a haunting and a ghost story. I mean this literally. In today's show, a ghost will play an important and some historians claim a decisive role in the story. But first, I've got to thank Simon from Chile for buying us around tonight. And if you want to buy us around, head over to thebattlecast.com and hit the Make a Donation button. Now, if you remember, we left the Crusaders having just captured Antioch, and then, on the very next day, they were themselves besieged in the city, outnumbered by a Muslim army one chronicler said was too vast to even count. The armies ready to meet each other in the field to conquer or die. Now, I sat and looked at my screen for 10 minutes like an idiot trying to figure out how to start this show until I remembered Keep It Simple Stupid. Modern historian Thomas Asbridge gives a great summary of where we are in our story, so I'll just quote him. Quote, in June 1098, the first crusaders found themselves ensnared in a bizarre predicament. Having spent some eight months starving and battling to gain entry to Antioch, they now suddenly found themselves trapped within its very walls. The advanced scouts from an immense Islamic army led by the Sultan Kerboga began to arrive outside Antioch. They soon struck an early blow against the Crusaders. The Muslim scouting party, made up of about 300 cavalry, sent ahead yet another scouting party to reconnoiter the city. The sight of them approaching proved too much for Roger of Barnesville, a powerful southern Italian Norman knight renowned for his bravery. He charged out against them with only 15 of his most capable men and, when the Muslims fled, raced on in pursuit. It was a trap. The Muslims were only feigning a retreat. As Rogers was drawn away from the safety of the city, the remainder of the Muslim force poured out of a hidden valley, pouring out like ants disturbed from a broken hill. The medieval chronicler Albert describes what happened next, quote, the Turks on speeding horses drove into the fleeing crusaders until Roger drew near the town walls and almost escaped, but luck had turned her face from him. A Turkish soldier had broken ranks and pushed out to bridge the gap between himself and Roger. The Turk took careful aim, like a marksman, posting his body over the galloping horse to provide a stable base from which to fire the arrow and loose just one arrow at Roger and that arrow struck home. It pierced his back and penetrated his liver and lung, and he slipped from the horse and breathed his last ragged breath far from the tanned, scalpel-defined arms and ice-gray eyes of his woman in Italy. He gave his life for his people." End quote. The Turks didn't stop there, but they dragged Roger's body out of arrow shot and decapitated it. Placing the unblinking head on a pike as a symbol for the kind of war they came to bring to the Christians, it rotted in the harsh Mediterranean sun, the flies eating the flesh of a nobleman. They took bites from the cheeks where the most beautiful women in Italy had kissed, and his noble tongue, that tongue that had often rallied his man and commanded his servants and army, like a boss, became a home for maggots. His order had once brought dread to a hundred peasants. Now, his bloated face was a picture of detritus, such as the vanity and the chasing after wind of men. And then the rest of Kerboga's army lurched into view, an unending tale of men slowly pulling up around the walls of Antioch like Sauron's army at the Black Gates of Mordor. The Crusaders bit the insides of their cheeks when they saw them all. They were outnumbered two to one. Their cavalry were almost non-existent. They had already eaten many of their horses. Their dreams of victory were transmutating into nightmares. The crusade leaders decided to use the immense fortifications of Antioch to their own advantage. They would defend the walls. Now, it's important to remember that Muslims still hold the citadel of Antioch, the highest point in the city. Kerboga established contact with the garrison in the citadel and quickly put his own commander in charge, so now he has a back door into the city. This is hugely important because the citadel allows the Muslims to threaten an entire wall of Antioch's defenses. 
Moreover, it allows Kerboga to slowly infiltrate men into the Citadel, building up his forces so they can burst forth at the decisive moment like a second Trojan horse. On June 10th, the Crusaders realized that Kerboga was infiltrating forces into the Citadel and was about to launch a major attack against them. The Christians decided to go on the offensive first. Using a small door, they launched a quick strike that drove off the Muslims next to the wall. But instead of pressing on with the attack, the Crusaders, overcome by gnawing hunger, began to loot the Muslim camp. That's when the counterattack came. The Islamic army poured onto the Christians outside the walls like icing being slowly knifed over a cake. The Crusaders literally trampled one another to get back inside the walls, and that's when Kerboga launched his general offensive against the demoralized Christians. Two groups of Islamic soldiers poured out of the citadel. One attacked a camp of Crusaders at a vital mountain pass that had been screening the Muslims in the citadel. Another group from the citadel attacked the walls of the city. The Christians in the mountain pass had to be driven off for the attack to be successful. At the same time, yet more Muslim troops from the main external Islamic forces attacked the city walls running south of the citadel. That's when both sides grappled with one another. The men fought all day long. The Christians would beat back one group of Muslims and then another fresh group would attack. It was like the 300 Spartans facing down the endless hordes of Xerxes. The two armies fought each other to a standstill for two days straight. They fought from dawn to dusk. One crusader remembered we fought so much that a man with food had no time to eat and a man with water had no time to drink. It was just constant fighting. An eyewitness describes the battle like this, quote, Many gave up hope and rushed to lower themselves with ropes from the wall tops. And then the city soldiers returning from the battle told everyone who would listen that mass decapitation of the defenders was in store. To add weight to the terror, some men fled even as others urged the undecided to stand fast. Everything was a tumult. Well-known knights began to desert the cause of Christ. William of Grand Mesnil, Bahomans own brother-in-law let himself down from the wall secretly during the night and fled on foot to the sea. Many others fled with him. And when they reached the Christian boats at St. Simon's Port, they called to the sailors, You idiots! What are you staying here for? All our men are already dead, and we've barely escaped death ourselves. There are none left alive. Let's get out of here. And when the sailors heard this, they were horrified and rushed in terror to their ships and put to sea. At that moment, the Turks arrived and killed everyone whom they could catch. They burned those ships and took their cargoes. They had sought to abandon their comrades in the city, but God had abandoned them. Another modern historian describes the fighting over the next four days. Quote, Bahomond was in the thick of the fighting, and at one stage he was surrounded and had to be rescued. Later, a southern Italian knight, known only as Mad Hugh, managed to defend a tower on the wall single-handedly, breaking three spears in the process. He stood alone for hours, while his own comrades, who had traveled over a thousand miles on foot with him, abandoned him to his inevitable fate. But God was with Hugh, and the more he won the battle, the more he lost his mind. He was never the same after that black day. His hands were so blistered from the fighting that when he took off his gloves afterwards, the skin of his hands came off with the gloves, and inside was a tomato soup of blood and pus where his hands used to be. Three times Hugh was struck, point blank, with the naked swords of his enemies, and three times his chainmail armor deflected the blow, but the blows were still hard, and Hugh's bones broke under the weight of his enemy's scimitars. Still he fought on, grinding his teeth to bits, the sweat hornet biting his eyes. He fought. He did his duty. Such is the path of the crusader. Such is the path to victory. Such is the way Christ's army was saved that day. Even with such brave men fighting like Spartans, the casualty rate was high. On June 12th, the shortage of manpower up on the mountain became so desperate that Bullman took the step of ordering buildings in the southwestern corner of the city, where he believed some crusaders were hiding, to be set on fire. Here's the gate to hell! The men screamed when they lit the flames. The fire got out of control, almost reaching the Basilica of St. Peter, but it worked. The stragglers were forced to join the fighting, the fire literally at their back as they fought Kerboga's hordes. On June 14th, a comet was seen in the sky, and the Muslims withdrew their forces from the blistering assaults of the previous day. The comet had unnerved them and boosted the morale of the Crusaders. 
but Kerboga had a reason for withdrawing his forces. Instead of battering through the Crusader lines, at one point Kerboga decided to spread his forces around the city and squeeze it into submission, skirmishing at all points, finding weaknesses and exploiting them. But for the next two weeks there would be no grand battles, just an endless tightening of the noose, a snake crushing the larynx of its prey, and the Crusaders were cut off from the rest of the world. Still, there was constant fighting during this time. One night, Tancred took out ten men on a raid and returned with the heads of six Turks. Most modern historians believe Kerboga was trying to starve the Crusaders out, and his plan worked. All the food in the entire region had already been devoured over the previous eight months, as Van Creveld has already shown in his wonderful book, Supplying War. It takes approximately 1.5 pounds of bread or grain to feed a man. All the grain had already been gone from that region. There were no reserves left. The crusaders were fighting on empty stomachs, and yet they fought on. The horses required even more fodder, but there were few crusader horses to speak of. They had already been eaten in the previous eight months. An eyewitness describes the Christian situation like this, quote, The blasphemous enemies of God kept us so closely shut up in the city of Antioch so that many of us died of hunger for a small loaf at that time cost more than a man made in six months, and the price of one was beyond calculation. The men ate anything and everything. All things were very dear. Men boiled and ate the leaves of figs, vines, thistles, and all kinds of trees. Others stewed the dried skins of horses and camels, asses or oxen, which they ate. Famine grew so great that men chewed leather found in homes which had hardened or putrefied for six years. People ate their leather shoes. The men ate any plant. They would boil it first. Many grew sick and died, so their numbers were lessened every day." Each and every eyewitness to these events testified that the battle was hopeless. They all thought they would die at Antioch, but then a miracle happened. God broke the bounds between the worlds and gave the crusaders the spiritual food they needed to win. The miracle was the Holy Lance of Antioch. On June 10th, a peasant from Provence named Peter Bartholomew came unbidden to speak to Bishop Adamar and Count Raymond. In the interview, Peter told the nobleman since December 30th, 1097, Peter was visited by two men clad in brilliant garments on five separate occasions. He described these angelic beings saying, The older one had red hair sprinkled with white, a broad and bushy white bearded. He had black eyes, an agreeable face, and was of medium height. His younger friend was taller and fair in form beyond the sons of men. Peter believed these were St. Andrew the Apostle and Jesus Christ himself. From his first appearance, St. Andrew had one mission for Peter. Peter must uncover the Holy Lance, the lance that had pierced the side of Christ during the crucifixion on Golgotha. It was buried, the Spirit said, in the Basilica of St. Peter, right there at the Crusaders' feet. It was the greatest church in Antioch, and here was the most sacred weapon they needed to win. Peter was shown in a vision where the lance was buried even before the city fell. St. Andrew charged Peter to reveal the relic's location to the crusader princes so it might be recovered once Antioch fell and then used as a standard. For the apostle said, He who carries this lance into battle shall never be overcome by the enemy. But Peter claimed he had been too frightened to tell his story. Now finally here, in the crusade's darkest hour, he had decided to come forward. Peter's story divided the crusader princes, but Raymond believed it and defended Peter. While most were skeptical, the princes allowed a search to proceed under the Basilica of St. Peter. They dug for hours, and they found nothing. The men were about to give up when Peter himself jumped into the hole barefoot and began to dig with his bare hands. Still, they found nothing. Then, suddenly, there was something down there. What's that? One man whispered. There protruding from the ground was a point of metal. They had found it. Raymond jumped into the pit and kissed the tip. The news, like a denigrating lie in high school, quickly spread among the crusaders, whose morale was immediately lifted by the discovery. We don't have any descriptions of the lance itself, but we do know it filled the Christian population with joy beyond measure. God, with the help of Peter, had given the crusaders the spiritual food they needed to keep up the fight, but the fight wasn't over. There was still an army outside the walls to defeat. Immediately, the heartened Christian princess started planning a counterattack against the Muslims. Who could stand against them now that they had the lance of God himself? 
from June 14th to 28th. The men worked out the plan and then they pushed the button. Part of that plan depended on the Emperor Alexius. The Crusaders were counting on him to march to their rescue, but Christian deserters from Antioch had reached Alexius weeks earlier and had sworn up and down that the city had fallen. They claimed only the citadel remained to the Christians, a bald-faced lie, because the Christians had never even taken the citadel in the first place. Hearing this, and with the priority of protecting Constantinople, Alexius turned back and scorched the earth behind him. He had abandoned the crusaders to their fate. There would be no help from outside the city. On June 24th, the crusaders sent two ambassadors to the Muslim camp, Peter the Hermit, and an interpreter named Herlin. Even though they were cut off and starving, Peter acted like Mel Gibson in Braveheart and, while dressed in rags, told the Turks that the Crusaders would be lenient on them if they left now. But if they persisted, they were ready to kill them all! He acted like the Turks were the ones cut off and starving. The Turkish ambassadors pinched themselves. Was this guy for real? Kerboga simply laughed in their faces and told the Christians that death or slavery waited for them all unless they laid down their arms and converted to Islam. On June 25th, the Christian defenders of Antioch decided to make a bold attack on the Muslim army. They temporarily elected Bohemond in charge of the entire crusader force. Then the entire army fasted and prayed for three days, receiving communion, purifying themselves before the final battle. Thomas Asbridge takes up the story, quote, on June 28, 1098, the men were preparing to fight, and at first light they began marching out of the city, while the clergy lined the walls and offered prayers to God. The Crusaders staked the fate of the entire expedition on this one desperate day. The Crusaders numbered just 20,000 men, including non-combatants, and was mainly infantry-based. Almost all of the horses in the Christian army had already died. Bowman's battle plan was outstanding and executed perfectly. The bridge gate was chosen as the sally point placing the Christians on the western bank of the Orontes. This limited the number of enemy troops initially encountered because the physical barrier of the river hampered any approach by the Muslim forces stationed at the other gates. Bohemian planned to decimate this isolated section of the Muslim army and then turned to meet the remaining Islamic forces on more equal terms. Hugh of Vimandois led a squadron of archers in the first wave of attacks out the gate. They rushed like greyhounds across the bridge, unleashing intense volleys of arrows from their armor-penetrating longbows that beat back the first line of Muslim troops. Now the way out of the city was open. Bowman deployed his remaining forces on the plain of Antioch in the wake of huge shock attack, throwing his infantry to the front, and he sought to close in on the horse-mounted enemy in order to reduce their ability to maneuver or use missile weapons. In other words, he's going to hug the enemy so they can't use their superior weapons, in this case horses, against him. Bowman was a master of organization, and so he divided his army into four clear units, each unit led by a prince. Bowman himself led the largest unit and held it in reserve to use at the most needed point during the battle." End quote. As soon as the crusaders ventured out of the walls, the Muslim-held citadel raised a black flag to warn Kerboga. The audacity of the crusader attack seems to have stunned Kerboga. He didn't know how to respond. And so, for the crucial first minutes of the battle, he did nothing. Gaping in stunned silence as the Christian archers impaled his men on their steel-tipped arrows. Then, as the crusaders organized their battle lines and reformed into formations, he still did nothing. If he was going to attack, he should do it as the Christians came out of the gate so as to catch them off guard and disorganized. Now it was too late. They were already organized and slicing through his army just the way a pizza cutter easily splays through pizza. A modern historian picks up the story, quote, the Crusaders, having forced their way onto the plains, immediately faced a counterattack from the Muslims guarding the bridge gate, and this was followed by troops rushing from the nearby Muslim positions. Then the Crusaders were attacked from the rear by another Islamic force. At this decisive moment, facing encirclement and open battle, the Crusaders held their ground. Reinhard of Toul was dispatched with a squadron of northern Frenchmen to guard the rear of the Crusader army. He met the attack coming from behind with such ferocity that the Muslims fled the field, setting the ground behind them on fire to ensure that Reinhard couldn't follow them. 
the rear had held. At the same time, the Christians in the front line held formation as Muslim attacks ebbed and swirled around them, an ocean of jihadists surrounding an isthmus of crusaders. They sought to disperse and surround the crusaders, but the crusaders refused to be surrounded. They had learned to bunch the Muslims together and fight them in groups, and that's just what the eyewitnesses say the Christians did, In quote. Unable to break the Christian ranks, the first wave of Muslim attackers broke and fled right into Kerboga's face, and the face of his reinforcements who were coming to help him. The fleeing Muslims shattered the formations of the reinforcing army, not to mention demoralizing everyone who saw them. Soon, the reinforcing battalions became an unorganized mob, and they too were fleeing, while Crusader archers peppered their retreating flanks with arrows. After a brief engagement, Kerboga was forced to retreat. An eyewitness says what happens next at this decisive moment. Quote, some men swore they saw countless armies with white horses whose standards were all white pour out of the mountains like a rushing waterfall and fight with us. And so, when our leaders saw this army, they recognized the aid of Christ. This is to be believed, for many of our men saw it. Thereupon we invoked the living and true God and charged against them. And in the name of Jesus Christ and the Holy Sepulchre, we began the battle and God helping, we overcame them. But the terrified Turks took the flight and our men followed them to the tent. Thereupon the knights of Christ chose rather to pursue them than to seek any spoils, and they pursued them even to the Iron Bridge, and then up to the fortress of Tancred. The enemy indeed left their pavilions there filled with gold, silver, and also animals of all kind, grain, wine, butter, and many other things which we needed. When the Armenians and Syrians who dwelt in those regions heard that we had overcome the Turks, they ran to the mountains to meet the retreating Turks, and killed as many of them as they could catch. We, however, returned to the city with great joy and praised and blessed God who gave the victory to his people, end quote. A lightning strike by an unwavering and deeply cohesive Christian force had broken the unruly and untested Muslim army. The main Muslim camp fell to the Christians who gorged themselves on bread and wine. Within hours, the dumbfounded Muslims in the citadel surrendered in the city was now truly, completely, and totally in Christian hands. For nine months, the city had barred the way to Jerusalem. Now nothing stood in the crusaders' path. Soon the holy city would fall to them and their vow would be fulfilled. The holy lands would be theirs. Christ's standard would once again flutter in the holy land. Who could stop them now? Who could stop them? Themselves, that's who. As so often happens, the victors fell into disunion. Bowman was widely regarded as the preeminent leader of the princess, but he didn't want to lead the crusader army to Jerusalem. He wanted to stay in Antioch and rule over it. And, of course, protect his claim from the claim of Alexius, but many crusaders felt Alexius hadn't adequately supported the crusader army, especially through the many months of starvation they had endured to conquer Antioch. Not once, but twice. No. Antioch was the crusaders by right. Their very graves surrounded the city. Antioch would stay crusader come what may. But who would lead the crusaders to Jerusalem now that Bohemond was staying in Antioch? After the fall of Antioch, wealthy princes began to siphon followers from other crusader groupings. It's not that crusader soldiers were disloyal. But so many of them had died that many of them no longer could follow their original leaders. What if the prince you swore fealty to was dead? What would you do? You could pledge your service to another prince, and that's what many of them did do. This led to a realignment of the power structure of the Crusader army. Wealthy princes became stronger. Weaker groupings melted away. Small groupings of Crusaders raided and conquered small towns, forts, and villages in the area. So they are still skirmishing with the Muslims in the region. But there's no large-scale battles during the summer of 1098. Then something horrible happened. The plague struck. And it struck hard. The plague spread through the streets of Antioch, striking down the weak, the sick, and the wounded. The poor suffered the most, as the poor usually do, but the elite suffered too. And one of the greatest calamities that came from the plague was the death of Bishop Adamar, the spiritual head of the crusade and representative of the Pope, who had stayed in the city to tend the sick who could not tend themselves. All he did was get himself killed. 
Now the princes had no spiritual leader. It was Adamar who had made the princes shake hands and make up when they were at each other's throats like pubescent boys fighting over a game of football. The plague was so bad that thousands died. 1,500 fresh crusaders arrived from Germany in early August. They had traveled thousands of miles to be there. A month later, they were all dead, cut down from the plague, which many modern scholars believe was typhoid. Since Bowman was more interested in consolidating northern Syria as his personal kingdom, leadership would fall to someone else. There were two men who many crusaders believed could lead the army to victory, Godfrey of Bouillon and Raymond of Toulouse. Both men were respected military figures. Both had wealth so they could pay their followers, and both had large groupings of men loyal to them. But there was one trump card. The 50-year-old Raymond was the most prominent advocate of the Holy Lance relic. This association with the relic of Christ could tilt the balance of leadership into Raymond's favor. Here's how one contemporary described Raymond's close identification with the lance. Quote, Behold, God gave this lance to Raymond and had reserved and protected it for Raymond throughout the ages and also made him leader of the crusaders on the condition of his devotion to God. End quote. But tied to the lance and thus tied to Raymond's leadership and ultimate wealth and ultimate victory was Peter Bartholomew. The obscure peasant who had found the lance in the first place. He was a fervent supporter of Raymond, but the man was eccentric. And when I say eccentric, I don't mean he had a crazy haircut. The guy was claiming to have visions every other day. For example, 48 hours after Adamar died, he decided to make a visit to Peter. Peter visited with the ghost of Adamar for many hours. In life, Adamar had been skeptical of Peter and the Lance, but now that God had chastised Adamar by killing him and explaining how he, God, had chosen Peter and the Lance to help the Crusaders achieve victory in Antioch, Peter reported Adamar had a sudden change of opinion about the Holy Lance. In fact, Adamar was now Peter's greatest supporter. They had talked face to face. And Adamar had asked for Peter's forgiveness, and Peter had graciously forgiven the old papal legate. Here's what one medieval chronicler had the ghost of Adamar say, quote, Following the uncovering of the lance, I sinned deeply, and so was drawn down to hell, whipped most severely, and as you can see, my head and face were burned. I was saved from eternal hell because I had demonstrated my faith in the lance by giving just three coins as alms in the lance's name when I was alive. It was this that saved me from eternal damnation. Oh, my brothers, follow the lance. Follow it and save your soul. Follow the lance and redeem Christ's holy land. Follow the lance and follow God's will. For where the lance goes, Christ's sacred blood goes, and none can stand against the lance. Then Adamar, through Peter, said, Behoman said that he would carry my body to Jerusalem. For his sake he shall not move my corpse from its resting place at Antioch, because some of the blood of Christ, with whom I am now associated, remains there. But if he doubts my statements, let him open my tomb, and he shall see my burned head and face. And from this day forth I promise to return and offer better advice than I did in life. I myself desire, and indeed it is God's will, that all my vassals, together with their dependents and subjects, join Join with Raymond in God's holy work to recapture his sacred city, Jerusalem. End ghost quote. And Adamar's followers poured into Raymond's ranks and it worked. Securing his place as the ultimate leader of the crusade, Peter continued to be visited by ghosts of many saints, including St. Andrew. And wouldn't you know it, all these saints wanted the crusaders to follow Raymond too. But now that Raymond had secured his powerful place among the leaders of the Crusaders, he began to flex his muscles. He consistently blocked Bowman's claims to ownership of Antioch. Moreover, Raymond actually occupied key areas of the city, areas vital for the resupply and protection of the city, and therefore the whole region. Raymond continued to maintain that Alexius was the sole rightful ruler of Antioch. But where was the emperor to make his claim himself? The answer is the emperor was in Constantinople. Because of Muslim attacks and delays, it had taken the victorious crusaders, the men who actually captured and secured Antioch, months to get back to Constantinople and tell Alexius, hey, we've got this major metropolis and key enriching trade hub to give you. You might want to come get it before someone else does. Alexius gave the crusader messengers a blank look of disbelief when he heard the news. He couldn't believe it. But by then, it was late September, and there were significant Muslim forces between Alexius and Antioch. It would be months before he could secure his claim. 
In the meantime, the Crusader princes decided to appeal to Pope Urban to decide what they should do and who should lead the crusading army, and this is to their credit. They attempted to preserve unity. They didn't fight one another, which is always the wrong direction to go when you are literally surrounded by enemies like the Crusaders were. So they wrote a letter to the Pope asking him to come and take the Crusades over himself, which is actually a great idea. They even told him, hey, you started this, now help us finish it. And since I love the idea of leaders actually putting their ass where their mouths are and actually taking part in the suffering they helped to create, I'll read part of the Crusader letter to you. Here's what they wrote to the Pope, and I want you to picture the lump in the Pope's throat when he read this. I mean, I've had unattractive girls write me love letters like this, totally sincere, and I felt my stomach drop into my feet. How do you think the Pope felt when he read this? Quote, since you initiated this pilgrimage and by your sermons have caused us to leave our own lands, we now beg you to come to us and urge whomever you can to come with you. For it was here in Antioch that the name of Christian first originated. Therefore, what in the world would seem more proper than that you, who are the father and head of the Christian religion, should come to the principal city and capital of the Christian name and finish the war, which is your project, in person? For if you come to us and finish with us the pilgrimage that you inaugurated, the whole world will be obedient to you. Use us, your obedient sons, to eradicate and destroy by your own authority and our strength all heresies of whatever kind, wherever they may be. End quote. Pretty heady and sincere stuff, if you ask me. But the Pope was tied up in Europe, and no one had even heard from Emperor Alexius. By November 1st, Alexius and Urban had not responded to the Crusaders at all. Now they were truly alone and cut off. The leaders of the Crusaders debated, but the impasse between Bohemond and Raymond remained. Eyewitnesses later wrote the two men almost took up their weapons and made war on one another. And had they been in Ireland, they probably would have. But they were in Syria. And anybody with eyes could see that if the men fought one another, they would really be fighting for the legions of Muslims lurking just a few miles away. No, they must not spill one another's blood. This leads us to another law of power. Now, if you remember, the first law of power is power is the capacity to nullify the enemy. And the second law of power is if two units decrease one another's power, all other units in the system become more powerful. This means if you reduce your power, you make your enemies better able to nullify you. Therefore, you make them more powerful. Bahamond and Raymond understood this law of power, and they were forced to comply, even though they didn't want to, because after all, they were in Syria, not Ireland. Instead, the Crusaders dispersed again in order to survive another winter. They would spend yet another bone-freezing winter in gridlock around Antioch. Let's just hope there wasn't another strain of typhoid ready to break out. By the way, in your own life, you're going to face decisions like this. You need to learn to compromise. It would be better for everyone if Bohemond and Raymond had given in to one another. It would save men's lives, because the whole time, the Islamic forces are rebuilding and growing stronger, but instead they persisted in their petty grievances in your own life. For example, with your girlfriend or your wife, you need to give in sometimes. In the Hagakuri, the wise samurai showed his students some fish in a stream who kept wallowing in mud, making themselves dirty. But the fish always came out and got clean in the stream again. That's just like the people we rule over, said the samurai master. They get muddy in dishonor, but you must wink at them. When they do that, because look what happens when they come back into the stream of wisdom. They are clean again. I would also remind you of the words of Christ. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. As Carl Schmidt demonstrates in his concept of the political, Jesus is specifically referring to a private enemy. Someone from your own people is trying to block your plans. Jesus is saying it's better for everyone for you to give up your private wants for the benefit of everyone. I would also remind you that the apostle commands us in Ephesians to love your wife as you love yourself. This means doing the dishes for her and picking up laundry for her. I know it seems stupid to us guys after we've worked a 55-hour work week, but it means a lot to them, and in the end they will actually do more for you than if you never helped at all. And yes, just in case you're wondering, I've got a load of laundry going right now while I'm recording this. My hands are wrinkled from washing dishes. Now let's get back to the Crusaders. So for the winter of 1098 to 1099, the Crusaders are disunited. That's when two groups of Crusaders pressed south to besiege the city of Marat. 
It was Raymond who went first, and after Bohomed found out, he followed Raymond in order to have a counterclaim to the region south of Antioch. When the Crusaders arrived at Marat, the local citizens drove the Crusaders up the wall, and I mean this literally. I'll let an eyewitness explain, quote, The heathen citizens railed at our leaders, cursed our army, and desecrated crosses, and they fixed to their walls these crosses to anger us. We were so enraged by the natives that we openly stormed the walls, end quote. But the rash dash up the walls was easily beaten back. The leaders met in council and decided to assault the town. That's when their men set to work cracking the turtle shell. They filled in the moat. They undermined the walls. They built new and better ladders. But most impressive of all, they built a giant siege tower, which was taller than the walls of the city they were besieging. During the second, better organized assault. The Muslim garrison concentrated their efforts on destroying this tower, and that was their fatal mistake, because out of nowhere, like an expert chess player who patiently trades pawns and slowly whittles down his enemy's forces on one side of the board before sending a rook flying across the play field and into checkmate, the Christians attacked on the other side of the city unlooked for. The small number of Muslim troops managed to hold the Christians on the wall, but the Christians kept replacing their casualties while the Muslims were slowly melting away on the wall. Suddenly, a section of the wall fell, and when the Islamic defenders saw this, they abandoned the defenses and fell back into the town. Now there was no one on the walls to oppose the crusaders. They cut in half the ten defenders who feebly attempted to block their path and flew like chess pieces across the city. Every man suddenly transformed from pawns to queens. But Bullman was a fox. He sent a message to the aristocrats of Marat and told them to gather at a palace, and if they did this, he would protect them. They complied with this order on December 12th, the day the city formally fell to the Crusaders, but Bowman was a warrior, and he took no great pity on the town's elite who had refused to surrender. He considered them guilty in defense, and so an eyewitness says what happened next like a second game of Thrones Slaughterhouse, quote, Bowman stripped them of all their belongings, gold, silver, and other valuables, and some of them he caused to be killed, and others he caused to be taken to Antioch as sold as slaves, end quote. Once these men's words had been law in Marat, now they cleaned the toilets of Antioch. Another contemporary remembers the sack of Marat this way. Quote, Our men all entered the city, and each seized his own share of whatever goods he found in house or cellars. And when it was dawn, they killed everyone, man or woman, whom they met in any place whatsoever. No corner of the town was clear of Saracen corpses, and one could scarcely go about the streets except by treading on their dead bodies. The Christians filched all the goods above ground, and, driven by the hopes of Saracen wealth underground, smoked the enemy out of their caves with fire and sulfur flames like they were cooking barbecue. And when the plunder in the caves proved disappointing, they tortured to death the hapless Muslims in their reach. Some of our men had the experience of leading the Saracens through the streets, hoping to locate spoils of war, only to find their captives would lead them to wells and then suddenly jump headlong to their deaths in preference to revealing goods owned by them or others because of their intransigence. All submitted to death. Their corpses were thrown into the swamps and areas beyond the walls, and so Marat yielded little plunder." End quote. Finally, Murad had fallen, but a new threat began to rise. There was little food in the crusader ranks, and the regular men, the average hardcore crusader, did not want to starve through yet another winter. Now they should press forward and capture Jerusalem right now, today. Yesterday was too late. They begged Raymond to lead them, but if he refused, and the thronging crowds began to demand that Raymond give them the Holy Lance and let them, the ordinary soldiers alone, take it and conquer Jerusalem with it. In other words, there was a very real threat of mutiny. Raymond told the Crusaders that he intended to march on Jerusalem in two weeks' time, and this bought him some breathing space. He called yet another meeting of the Crusade leaders in January of 1099, but the old impasse between Raymond and Bowman could not be broken. However, Bowman withdrew his forces at Marat to Antioch to bolster his claim to that city. Now Raymond was the undisputed master of Marat. But the food supply to Marat had collapsed. The poor crusaders were already starving during Christmas. A modern historian paraphrases the eyewitness accounts of the starvation like this, quote, Some, desperate to find money wherever they could, ripped up the bodies of the Muslim dead because they sometimes found coins hidden in their entrails. Others took even more savage steps 
Here our men suffered from excessive hunger. I shudder to say that several of our men, terribly tormented by the madness of starvation, cut pieces of flesh from the buttocks of Muslims lying there dead. These pieces they cooked and they ate, savagely devouring the flesh while it was insufficiently roasted. Another account that is perhaps even more disturbing, asserted that the food shortage became so acute that the Christians ate with gusto many rotten Muslim bodies which they had pitched into the swamps three weeks before, end quote. In these terrible conditions, the inevitable mutiny came. The regular crusaders began to tear down the walls of Marat in order to make the city indefensible and force Raymond to march south on Jerusalem come hell or high water. Here's how an eyewitness describes the mutiny, quote, Thereupon even the sick and the weak, arising from their deathbeds and hobbling along on sticks, came all the way to the walls. An emaciated person could roll back and forth and push stones from the walls. The bishop of Albera and Raymond's friends, exhorting and pleading against such vandalism, went about the town, but those who had scrambled from the walls and hidden at their approach were quick to resume their work as soon as the guards passed them by." Under these conditions, Raymond had no choice but to lead the crusading army south. It would inaugurate the final stage of the First Crusade. On January 13, 1099, Raymond, his army strengthened with the addition of other smaller crusader groupings, began the march south to Jerusalem. At the beginning of his march south, Raymond made truces with many local Muslim towns, which pragmatically allowed him to purchase resupplies for his disheveled troops. However, these truces were inevitably local in nature. Raymond might leave one town alone, but ten miles later he might attack a fort and utterly sack it. So the crusaders are still skirmishing the entire way south. His men were well fed and happy to be marching south, but there was another problem. He didn't have enough men. He is still basically leading his own band of followers. Without the crusaders still garrisoning the city of Antioch, there's no way he can take Jerusalem. Raymond had hoped that by marching south, he would galvanize the other crusading forces to follow his lead, but this simply hadn't happened. Now he was on the coast of the Mediterranean with 5,000 men, and since he felt it was impossible for him to take Jerusalem with this small force, he decided to besiege the city of Arca in Tripoli instead. Still, at first, things went great. Many nearby Muslim ports willingly accepted Raymond's rule and allowed Christian garrisons to take over their towns. And this was hugely important because now Raymond can receive supplies from the sea and he needed them, buddy. But there was still a problem at Arca. And while the details are lost to history, it seems the defenders at Arca had special projectile weapons that were highly effective. They constantly rained accurate fire down on the Crusaders. For three months, the Crusaders tried to crack the husk of Arca, but nothing worked. All they got from their troubles were mounting casualties. By early March of 1099, Bowman had expelled all of Raymond's followers and now was undisputed master of Antioch. After he had finally captured the city, he wasn't going just to leave it for Alexius to come and waltz in and take over. Meanwhile, the siege of Arca continued until April 5th, 1099, when something incredible happened. Peter Bartholomew claimed he had another vision of Christ, St. Peter, and St. Andrew. And Jesus had a message for Raymond. There were many sinners in the ranks of the Crusaders, and the Lord wanted to find them and weed them out of his army. Peter went on to explain how Raymond was to do this. All he had to do was simply line up his 5,000 men force as if they were preparing for a battle, whereupon the crusaders would miraculously be arranged in five ranks. The men in the first three ranks were sinless men of the cross, good guys. But the men of the last two ranks were inveterate sinners, and God said they had to be slaughtered. Fortunately, God had appointed Peter to oversee the execution of any man in the last two ranks. So in effect, Peter was calling for Raymond to voluntarily kill 40% of his own army, which is already too small to take Jerusalem, which of course every man in the army feels Raymond has to do, or they're going to mutiny again. What would you do? Well, I can tell you what happened. Another clergyman named Arnulf questioned Peter's vision. Peter met his accuser with a face of hate, refused to back down, and said he would gladly undergo an ordeal to prove he was the true messenger of Christ. This was duly arranged. Thomas Asbridge reports what happened next. Peter must have been totally convinced of the Lance's authenticity and his own role as God's messenger, because he chose to undergo trial by fire reportedly saying, I not only wish, but I beg you to set a blaze of fire, and I shall take the ordeal of fire with the holy lance in my hands, and if it is really the Lord's lance, I shall emerge unsinged. But if it is a false lance, 
I shall be consumed by fire this day, end quote. Peter underwent four days of fasting to purify his soul before the test. Then on Good Friday, before a massive crowd dressed in a simple tunic and bearing the relic of the Holy Lance, he willingly walked into an inferno, blazing olive branches stacked in two piles, four feet in height, about one foot apart and thirteen feet in length, putting himself into the furnace like a second Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Raymond of Aguilers. An eyewitness describes what happened to Peter this way, Quote, Peter walked through the fire and his tunic and the holy lance were left unsinged. As he emerged, Peter waved to the crowd, raised the lance and screamed out, God help us! Whereupon the crowd seized him and pulled him along the ground. Almost everyone from the mob pushed and shoved him, thinking Peter was nearby and hoping to touch him and snatch a piece of his clothing. The mob actually broke his legs bones in the scuffle and cut him three times, end quote. Other contemporary chroniclers report that he was burned and not hurt by the crowd at all, but no matter what really caused it, the fire or the crowd, the plain truth is, two weeks after the ordeal, Peter died from his wounds. I guess he hadn't seen that one coming in a vision. Now remember, Raymond's rise to prominence among the Crusaders' leaders was tied to the Holy Lance. Now the lance was ridiculed throughout the Crusader army and Raymond's star was falling. That's when something terrible happened. Ambassadors from Emperor Alexius finally showed up and demanded that Raymond stop crusading and wait until June for Alexius himself to come and lead the Crusader army into Jerusalem. The regular Crusaders, the men in the street, didn't want to wait for Raymond, let alone Alexius. The Emperor had abandoned them when they needed him most at the Siege of Antioch and now he wants us to wait for him to take us over? Forget that! We need to march south now. And so, under the threat of yet another mutiny, Raymond was forced to break off his siege of Arca and march south to Jerusalem. It was May 16, 1099. The siege of Arca had failed, but now at least all the crusading armies had massed together again one last time. They began to march south towards Jerusalem at a pace so rapid it would make Stonewall Jackson envious. At first they encountered little resistance as they marched throughout the territory comprising modern Lebanon and Israel. But by May 30th, the Crusaders had broken inland and there was no one to oppose them. On June 3rd, they reached the town of Ramleh, the last major obstacle in their way. The Crusaders sent out scouts to observe the town's defenses and see if they could spot a weakness. What they saw astonished them. The town was deserted. The Muslim population had so feared the Crusaders they had abandoned the town. Taking Ramleh was literally a walk in the park. They just took it over with no opposition whatsoever. Miraculously, the Islamic garrison had left a huge amount of food, which the crusaders gorged themselves on. They then proceeded to march on Jerusalem. After all, they had been through the ordeals of the double siege of Antioch, the infighting, the starvation, and mutinies. Now they were capturing major cities by just showing up, like modern high school students. You're here? Great job. You get a city. On June 7, 1099, the United Crusader Army encamped outside the steep walls of Jerusalem. Many openly wept at seeing the city. They had endured so much to get there. Many felt there was no way they could fail now. That's what they thought at first, but then they started taking off their rose-colored glasses and saw the city for what it was, one of the best fortified places on the planet. A modern historian describes the defenses of the city like this. The walls were two and a half miles long, 50 feet high, and 10 feet thick. They enclosed an area of 212 acres. To the east and west, these walls reinforced natural defenses such as hills. The north and southwestern walls were reinforced by a secondary outer wall and a series of dry moats, end quote. The walk in the park was over. Now came the death marathon. The Muslim governor of Jerusalem was working overtime to stop the Christians. He expelled all the Christian inhabitants of Jerusalem. There would be no turncoats making deals behind his back this time. Next, he poisoned every well outside the city to ensure the Crusaders had no water to draw on, while his own troops had plenty of clean wells within the city to draw on. The exact size of the Muslim garrison is unknown, I have to tell you that. The Christians outside Jerusalem numbered just 15,000 men, and only 1,300 of these were knights, but they were all hardcore veterans now. The Christians decided to besiege the city from two different locations and thereby split the Muslims during the Christian onslaught. But this time, now that Raymond's stature had gone down among the Crusaders, Godfrey of Bouillon was the preeminent leader of the crusading army. It was Godfrey who led the bulk of the troops at the siege of Jerusalem. On June 13th, the Crusaders struck like a piano key in a spaghetti western soundtrack. 
There was a problem, though. The Crusaders only had one ladder. They quickly overcame the outer screening wall and placed their single ladder on the main wall. The men formed into a line like kindergartners, and up they went like ants, and down they came like itsy-bitsy spiders washed out of the water spout when the rain comes down. Thomas Ashbridge describes the first assault, quote, The first man up the ladder was a knight named Rainbald Cretan. Ascending the walls, he had just seized the top of the battlements with his left hand when suddenly an enemy sword fell on him. Moving at lightning speed, the blade sliced through his forearm, almost completely severing his hand off. Rainbold survived this dreadful wound, but the crusaders were forced to retreat. Worse still, all the wells were poisoned. The Christians were forced to range far and wide just to find enough water to survive. Thirst gnawed at the men. Some crusaders actually lost their minds from the thirst. It was all the men thought about. They had to take the city. Then they could drink all the water they wanted. But luckily, about 600 Genoese sailors arrived with invaluable supplies and building skills. With these men, the crusaders began to construct siege equipment. But still the princess bickered. They couldn't agree as to who should rule over Jerusalem when it fell. Worse still, the clergymen present, instead of healing the gaps between the rulers, made it worse by arguing that none of them should rule over Jerusalem, but that it should become a spiritual home for all Christians, which really meant the clergy wanted to rule Jerusalem. I want to emphasize that the crusader leadership did manage to patch things up enough to assault the city, but there are some deep rifts in their ranks. For three weeks, from late June to early July, the Crusaders worked the siege, trying to undermine the walls, building up supplies for an assault. They designed two giant wheeled siege towers that were over three stories tall. They built a huge battering ram with an iron head. Soon the final battle would come. On July 14, 1099, after a ritual of purification, the Christians struck again. The assault started with a ruse, one of the key elements of success in war and politics. For three weeks, Godfrey's men had constructed a giant and foreboding tower in front of the city's northwestern corner. It rose in front of the Muslim garrison like a tower of Orthanc. The Islamic garrison responded by building up their own troops in the same area. This is just what the Christians had hoped would happen. It was all a trick. On the night of June 13th, the Crusaders quickly broke down the tower into smaller parts and just as quickly reassembled it half a mile away. The few Muslims opposite the newly rebuilt tower bit their fingers as they looked out at dawn to see a tower of Crusaders three feet away from their faces looking down on them. Then the first Christian assault of the day came. On the northern front, the Crusaders' first priority was to break through the small wall where they had rebuilt their tower and then push on to the main walls beyond. As the battle cry went up, they unleashed the first wave of missiles from three trebuchets, bombarding the inner wall and ramparts. Under this covering fire, the Christians deployed their massive wheeled battering ram. As the day wore on, the Christians struggled to inch the unwieldy ram forward, which they finally brought to bear against the small screening wall in front of the main walls. Many crusaders were pushing the ram one second and the next. They were choking on blood-infused dust, while their compatriots trampled over them like they were roadkill. Men took arrows in their necks and faces. Still, the ram came on. A contemporary remembers this stage, quote, the ram was driven on by the strength of an incredible number of men, and the ram itself looked like a porcupine. So many arrows had struck it. Finally, with a heavy charge, it weakened and overthrew the outer walls, creating an enormous hole through which our men poured like water down the throat of a dehydrated man, end quote. As the Christians assaulted the main walls, the Islamic garrison poured fire kindled from sulfur, along with pitch and bubbling hot wax down on the ram which burst into flames, along with a number of men who were burned alive for Christ. The crusaders literally fell over themselves in an attempt to put the fire out, which they eventually did. However, the battering ram was severely disabled in the fire and the crusaders realized they couldn't depend on the ram to take them through the main walls of the city. Worse still, the battering ram was immobile. And the men were constantly dying, trying to shift it out of the way of the rolling battle tower. The men desperately had to get the tower into position to take the city. That's when a crusader had an idea. My brothers, light the ram on fire! What? His comrade blinked at him in disbelief. Light it on fire! We burn it! 
Suddenly, like a machine engaging or bees flowing out to attack a disturber, the Christians set the ram on fire in order to make room for their battle tower. Desperately, the Muslim garrison attempted to douse the flames with water, but the ram burned nonetheless. The first line of defense was breached. Now all the crusaders had to do was crack the shell and get to the golden egg inside. At the same time, on the same day, on the south side of the wall, on Mount Zion, the Christians led another separate assault. This was the way that the Islamic garrison had predicted the Christians would attack and they were ready on this side of the city. They cut the crusaders down like a mower cutting through grass. One crusader remembered his fight on the south side of the wall this way, quote, First we began to push our tower against the walls, and then all the hellish din of battle broke loose. From all parts, stones hurled from catapults fell through the air, and arrows pelted us like hail. As our tower came close to the walls, defenders rained down upon the Christian stones, arrows, flaming wood and straw, and threw mallets of wood wrapped with ignited pitch on our machines and our bodies. The mallets had nails poking out of them, and so they struck whatever they hit and then burned them. These projectiles kindled fires, which held back those whom swords, high walls, and deep ditches had not stopped, end quote. The crusaders on the south side never even made it to the walls of the city. They were forced to pull back. The first day was over, and many men were disheartened by the results. At dawn on July 15th, the attack recommenced. To the south, the Christians continued to suffer under a withering defense. Once more, the siege tower was driven towards the city walls, but began to burn after a torrent of flaming missiles struck it. Then the great collapse came, and the men who desperately were trying to put out the flames were smashed and pinned in the flaming wreckage, screaming as the fire engulfed their sight, and fear choked off their consciousness like a small engine choking out. One man was pinned in by a wooden beam ten feet long. Slowly the flames crept towards his pinned legs, moving like a sloth, but relentless. First his feet felt the warmth, then the toes were bitten in the flames. Finally the fire crawled up his legs, melting his muscle membranes like liquid butter, pouring out his flesh from the underbeam like Campbell's chunky soup. He watched his legs melt the whole time until blessed unconsciousness blacked out his mind, and then the flames blacked out his life. But there were two sides to this attack, and while the Muslims beat back the crusader assaults on the south side, to the north it was another story. On the northern front, under the cover of renewed bombardment, the Christians pushed their giant siege tower on top of which they had placed a huge golden cross towards the hole in the outer wall. Godfrey of Bouillon himself stood on the top of the tower and led the way. One Latin chronicler remembered this point in the battle like this. The Muslims defended themselves with flaming missiles, hurling firebrands dipped in oil at our tower. Thereafter, death was present and sudden for many men on both sides. Because of the tightly packed streets and buildings within Jerusalem, the Muslims were able to aim their trebuchets only on or beside the main walls. This means they could not adjust the range to strike the crusaders who managed to get close to the city. If the defenders were going to stop the tower, they would have to do it before it passed under their range. The Muslims did all they could to bring the tower down. At one point, Godfrey was almost killed when a huge stone decapitated the man standing immediately next to him. In response, the attackers attempted to bring down the operators of the Islamic trebuchets with crossbows. Many fell, but many more swarmed over their machines and kept the stones coming. Finally, the crusaders made it past the range of the defenders' trebuchets. Then it was just a short arrow Strewn walked to the wall, and the final battle began in earnest. At the last minute, when the tower was just a few feet from the wall, the Muslims used their secret weapon, Greek fire. No water could put out those flames. If it hit, it burned whatever it touched like acid blood in the Aliens movie franchise. But there was a secret to this Greek fire. It could be put out with vinegar, and the local Christians knew it. They were forewarned by the local Christian population, and the Muslim defenders stared with the wide eyes of a man who was suddenly fired from his job as their inextinguishable flames were snuffed out one after another. Now the Christians were at the walls. If they could take over a portion of the battlements, their superior numbers would give them the final. Victory. Thomas Asbridge says what happens next, quote, 
Suddenly, in the midst of fierce fighting, the Crusaders realized that a nearby defensive tower and portion of the city walls were burning. The Crusaders had set fire to the main wall's wooden substructure. This fire produced so much smoke and flame that not one of the citizens on guard could remain near it. In panic and confusion, the defenders broke into retreat. Godfrey saw his chance, a lion bursting into a herd of gazelles. He cut loose one of the giant shields on the tower and fashioned a makeshift bridge onto the city's walls. Scores of Crusaders rushed forward to mount the wall with scaling ladders and used the teetering makeshift bridge. As soon as Godfrey and his men achieved this breach, the Muslim defense of Jerusalem collapsed with the rapidity of falling dominoes. Terrified by the Crusaders' savage reputation, those stationed on the northern wall fled in horror at the sight of the Christians mounting the walls. Soon the entire garrison was routed." End quote. The sack of Jerusalem on July 15, 1099 is one of the most horrifying events of the Middle Age. The Crusaders unleashed a tidal wave of brutality throughout the city. One Crusader named Raymond remembered the scene, quote, With the fall of Jerusalem, one could see marvelous works. Some of the pagans were mercifully beheaded, others pierced by arrows plunged from towers, and yet still more tortured for a long time were burned to death in flesh-searing flames. Piles of heads, hands, and feet lay in the houses and streets, and men and knights were running to and fro over the corpses. Many Muslims fled towards the Temple Mount, where some rallied and attempted to resist the Crusaders. This only enraged the attackers. They massacred anyone who resisted, and one man remembered wading up into his ankles in enemy blood at Solomon's temple. When all resistance collapsed, our men rushed around the city, seizing gold, silver, horses, and all sorts of household goods. Many poor men became rich as we systematically sacked the city." And then, with their hands and faces covered in the blood of their enemies and their packs loaded with spoils, the Crusaders came to the sepulcher of Jesus and made most pious worship, a Christian contemporary remembers. All the men came to the sepulcher of the Lord and his glorious temple, singing a new song unto the Lord in a high-sounding voice of exultation and making offerings and most humble supplications, joyously visiting the holy place as they had so long desired to do. The holy city was awash with blood and littered with mutilated corpses. Their rotting bodies threatened the crusaders with disease, so the leader soon ordered that the city be cleared, and the Muslim survivors were forced to clear the streets. A contemporary picks up the story. They dragged the dead bodies out in front of the gates and piled them up in mounds as big as houses. No one has ever seen or heard of such a slaughter of pagans, for they were burned on pyres like pyramids, and no one save God alone knows how many there were." End quote. Many civilians died in the confusion, but the exact number is unknown. One contemporary Muslim wrote that only 3,000 Muslims died at Jerusalem, while another source claims 70,000 were killed. The truth lies somewhere unknown in the middle. But I have no doubt that the horrible atrocities occurred on the streets of the Holy City. These crusaders sincerely believed they were doing the Lord's work. I know a lot of you are thinking, how could they believe that? Well, that's because you aren't familiar with Scripture, brother. Read your Bible. Then Jesus spake a parable, and he said, Therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him, and they sent a message after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Lord! Thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said to him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, have thou authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said likewise to him, Be thou also over five cities. And another man came, saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. For I fear thee, because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up, that thou layest not down, and reapest, that thou didst not sow. And he saith unto him, Out of thy own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that I laid not down, and reaping what I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest not thou money into the bank, that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury. And he said to him that stood by, Take from this one the pound, and give it to him that hath ten pounds. For I say unto you, that unto every one which hath shall be given. And from him that has not even what he has shall be taken from him. But those my enemies, which would not that I reign over them, bring them hither and slay them before me. 
Luke chapter 19. A modern historian summarizes the results of the First Crusade like this. The Crusaders therefore attained their goal three long years after they had set out. Against the odds, this struggling, fractious, and difficult enterprise had made its way from Western Europe to the Middle East and conquered two of the best defended cities of the time. From a modern perspective, the improbability of the First Crusade's success is staggering. For medieval Christians, though, the agent of victory was God himself, who worked miracle after miracle for his faithful knights. It was this firm belief that would sustain centuries of crusading. A successful surprise attack on the Egyptian relief army ensured the crusaders' occupation of Palestine. Having fulfilled their vows of pilgrimage, most of the crusaders departed for home, leaving the problem of governing the conquered territories to the few who remained. Initially, there was disagreement concerning the nature of the government to be established. As an interim measure, Godfrey was elected to govern and took the modest title of Defender of the Holy Sepulchre. In December 1099, a man named Danebert, the Archbishop of Pisa, was chosen patriarch and received the homage of both Godfrey and Baldwin. If Danebert had ambitions to govern Jerusalem, they were thwarted when, on Godfrey's death, his brother Baldwin was summoned back to Jerusalem, where he assumed the title of king. That was November 11th, 1100. Securing the new Christian territories was now of utmost concern. The Crusade of 1101, for example, was organized by Pope Paschal II to reinforce Christian rule in the Holy Land, but it collapsed in Asia Minor. King Baldwin, however, was also able to extend his control on the coastline with the aid of Italians and, in one instance, of a Norwegian squadron that arrived under King Sigurd in 1110. By 1112, the entire Mediterranean coast, except for two towns, were in Crusader hands." End quote. There would be many more battles to fight and holy wars to wage before the Middle East would become anything resembling the place we know today. And I'm sorry to say conflict has raged across that inner state of humanity and center point of religions for as long as man has had a pen to write and a tongue to tell the story. And so I'm sure we'll be coming back to the Middle East in the coming shows. But as I always say, that's another podcast. And so right now I want to thank Oliver from Cookstown for buying us around. I want to thank everyone for listening. Whatever you're doing, I want you to close your eyes and imagine speaking to 3,000 people in an auditorium. That would be pretty amazing, right? Well, because of you listening right now, I get to do that every month. And it's really cool for a low-level academic pro like me. It really is pretty awesome to be able to share these stories with thousands of people. And we're not going to stop. We're not going to quit. We're going all the way. And in the meantime, I'm Dr. Luke Wolf, wishing you good times and good weather with good people. Stop by next month where we're going to recount the epic story of the Boer War. Until then, goodbye.